this morning go to Luke chapter 1. We'll get back into our Luke series this morning. Luke chapter 1. And when you're there, if you're able to, stand with me as you read the scriptures. Luke chapter 1, we'll begin in verse number 26. The Bible says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God into a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind, what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God, and behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. And then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that thing which, is, which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, also, she hath also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For with God nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word, and the angel departed from her. Lord, bless your word this morning. We need the power of the Spirit to illuminate it for us, Lord. Pray that you would work in each heart this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. This morning, we're going to start back into our series by looking at the Annunciation of the birth of Christ. Uh, this is one of the most important moments in human history. Nothing had ever happened like this before. This is unique. Uh, I know there are all kinds of atheists out there today who argue that Christianity just copied other myths of other false gods uh, who were born of virgins. You have to understand, those, that's all false, right? There is absolutely no evidence of any god ever claiming to be born of a virgin. There is absolutely no evidence of any other god ever claiming to take on human flesh, to be fully incarnated as a man, that does not exist. They'll, they'll quote to you all kinds of stuff. Uh, I think we need to have a class on that someday. Just, you're going to hear, the, oh, this God, Mithras, and this God, and this God, and this God, the Son God. Uh, they had a very similar story to Jesus. When you look at the facts, they actually didn't. They didn't. There's no, well, number one, there's no original sources on any, on any of those gods. We have no original sources. So when they quote history to you, they're like, well, the god Mithras uh, had a very similar story. And they'll quote you, it's in this book and this book and this book. And those books are all from the 14th century. I'm like, those, those books are like 4,000 years after Mithras. We're supposed to believe what they, what they say? Isn't it possible that the people who wrote these books just hate Christ and they're taking the story of Christ and forming a, a false story with this God to sound like Christ copied him? That's more likely, right? Listen, this had never happened any time in human history. There is no religion that has ever been, 
There's no evidence for any religion that's ever been who taught that God became a man. Christianity alone holds this to be true. And by the way, even the Roman Catholic Church denies the Incarnation. You say, well, how is that true? They, they believe in the virgin birth. And if you study Roman Catholic teaching, they don't believe that Jesus was actually born. They believe he was kind of beamed out of the womb, Star Trek style, keeping Mary's virginity completely intact. That's why she's the forever Virgin Mary. If you, if you study what they teach and the, the Gnostic books they get it from, it actually teaches that Jesus made it down the birth canal just so far and then just kind of appeared in Mary's arms. That's not a birth. That's not how humans are born. Jesus was born fully man, fully God. He was born the same way you and I are born, okay? The Bible and Bible Christianity is the only religion that teaches truthfully the incarnation and the birth of Christ. Never before had a human nature and a divine nature ever been united into one person before. Never had. Never had. You had half gods and half men in, in Greek lore and Greek history. You have stories of, of demigods and all these things. But you never have God, the supreme God, adding to himself a human nature, which is what happened in Jesus Christ. Again, I repeat this a lot, Jesus lost nothing when he became a man. He added to himself our nature. Still fully God and still fully man. Let's walk through this here. Let's start in verse number 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee, unto Nazareth. The time marker here is the sixth month. This time is counted from chapter 1, verse 24, in the conception by Elizabeth. This is how we know that John the Baptist is six months older than Jesus. The angel Gabriel, being the same messenger who delivered the news to Zechariah about the birth of John, he also delivered the message to Daniel about the redemption of God's people. Okay, what we're seeing in our text is the beginning fulfillment of that prophecy to Daniel of the salvation of his people. He was sent. He was sent by God from the throne with him. I think I mentioned this in the question and answer one time. I love the vivid imagery of this passage, right? We think of heaven so often as this kind of far off floaty city somewhere in the sky with fat chubby babies on clouds playing harps. That's not what heaven is. It's a real place. It's a physical place, right? Christ has a physical human body. So a physical human body must exist in a physical human place. He's on a throne right now. He is sitting down on a throne right now, a real throne. Or you say, you think, you think he's really sitting on a chair? Yes, I do. In his physical human body. The way it talks, it talks like it's a real place. I love that about this passage. It really helps me to grasp that idea. So if I, if I say, you know, uh, I'm sending Tatsuo, and he's gonna, I'm going to send him from Lomita to Las Vegas to preach the gospel, right? You think, okay, Lomita, Las Vegas, just from one place to another. Lomita exists, Las Vegas exists at the same time. That's what we're seeing here. Gabriel's around God's throne, a real physical place. And then he sends him to a village called Nazareth. Just sends him. Goes from heaven to Nazareth and then back to heaven. They're both real places, real cities. 
that exists simultaneously. We need to get a hold of that. We need to get rid of this Gnostic idea of heaven. It's a real place. It's a real city. There's really a throne. And really a man in a real body named Jesus who sits on that throne and rules. And there are other people there, dead people, people who have physical form, who are there today worshiping, who are cognizant of what's going on. They are conscious people worshiping that Christ upon that throne. And there are angels. And angels are real too. You know that? I believe angels are real. They're real. They have physical bodies. But they're spiritual beings, right? You, go to, you get to heaven, you can see the angels. You can see the living creatures, and they're all praising this Christ who's sitting on a throne today. We need to get a hold of that because it's all so real. We need to live our lives like it's all so real because it is. Too often we're agnostic in how we live our lives. Like, oh, it's just this sky God that we don't see and this far off, what's the term? Erythral, erythral, I won't say the wrong word, but... what Kim just said, I can't repeat it, but what Kim just said, talk to her after church. That's how we see it, right? That's how we see heaven. Amen. We talk about loved ones or people who've died, and we're like, oh, they're gone. And we act as if they really are gone. Memories. Uh, I was listening to one time, uh, uh, this college group was singing, and they're talking about this old preacher, and they said, you know, he died, but he lives on in our hearts and our, on our memories. That's what, the, that's what the unbelievers would say. No, no, he's alive today, right? Either in heaven or in hell. You walk through a cemetery. You ever walk through a cemetery and think about it? Everybody here is conscious right now. They're alive somewhere, heaven or hell. You realize George Washington has never gone unconscious since the day that he died? We think of these people like they're so just... Oh, just distant memories. No, no, no. They are all alive, probably more alive than we are today. In a real place, heaven or hell. We need to get back to the idea that this is real. What we're living in now, this is not real. This is the phony stuff here. The spirit world is the real world. Heaven is the real city, okay? We shouldn't be wondering, is heaven like a real place or a floating city? People in heaven should be like, is earth, was that a real thing that happened to me? Or is that some far off distant memory? I mean... Because where they're at now, that's more real than where we're at today. It's real, folks. We need to get a hold of that. According to Josephus, this region of Galilee contained 204 towns, the smallest of which had 15,000 people. This area was north of Judea and Samaria, west of Perea, and contained the territories of Zebulon, Naphtali, Issachar, and Asher. Uh, some believe this detail about where the city is is included because he's writing to a Gentile who doesn't know the Jewish nation very well. I would argue that it's because he's writing to a Sadducee. It's always been my argument. He's writing to a Sadducee. And he's linking this, uh, this prophecy to Isaiah 9.1. Turn to Isaiah 9.1. Isaiah 9.1. His mentioning of Nazareth is very important, I believe. Isaiah 9, verse 1. I was nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, 
and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the side of the sea beyond Jordan and Galilee of the nations. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light, and they that dwell in the shadow of death upon them the light hath the light shined. A few verses later, we have this great prophecy of Christ in verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the Increase, of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Say, so why did he mention Nazareth? Because he's linking in the mind of this Sadducean leader, he's linking this to Isaiah chapter 9, which is important because the Sadducees didn't accept Isaiah's scripture. Keep in mind, as we go through this book, they only accepted the books of Moses as being inspired. And so now Luke is making a connection saying, see, these prophecies in Isaiah are coming true. These prophecies in Isaiah are linked to this person of Jesus Christ. Go back to our text, Luke chapter 1. Nothing is by accident in the Bible. Everything has a purpose. So he says that the, the, you know, why is it important? I mean, Jesus is born in, in, in Bethlehem. That's prophesied. We know that. Why didn't, they, why didn't Luke just say that? Why go all the way back to the, to the Annunciation in the city in Galilee? Because he's trying to show him that this prophecy was real, that Isaiah was a true prophet, and that Christ was coming into the world. Verse 27. To a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was married to a virgin. This is important because Luke is again stressing the miraculous. Remember, the Sadducees didn't believe in these miracles. Okay, the fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures. John could not. Uh, John could not be the one because his birth, although miraculous, was not the same. His mother was just past age when she bore him. This miraculous birth was the fulfillment of the prophecy of the virgin conceiving in Isaiah seven fourteen. He wants him to think about that. Isaiah 7, oh, I know of that. That's not inspired. And he's trying to say, no, it is inspired. And it came true. She was espoused, meaning betrothed. In this time uh, and culture, a betrothal ceremony would have happened about a year before the wedding. She was betrothed to a man named Joseph of the house of David. And this is to show the royal line to the throne of Israel. And the virgin's name was Mary. Uh, I like uh, how at first it doesn't even identify her name, does it? Just, he sent to a virgin in the city of Nazareth. And oh, by the way, her name was Mary. Just kind of a, a throwaway line. I think, uh, I, I, I don't know if it's true, but I like to think that God knew the Roman Catholic Church was coming and they were going to make a big deal about Mary. And he wanted to point out that, no, no, there's no great honor given to her here. Just her name is just kind of mentioned in passing. Oh, by the way, this is her name. This is her name. We're told nothing about her heritage or her life before this point. All the books that give such information are not inspired nor have they ever been considered scripture until, that is, the middle of the Reformation. When the beliefs of the Catholic Church were deemed as unbiblical, they suddenly came up with more books of the Bible that explained their doctrine more fully. None of the church fathers, not even Jerome, who translated the manuscripts that Rome based their Bible on, considered these texts to be authoritative. What we find in the historic Christian scriptures is very little said about Mary. Keep that in mind. God never meant for us to honor her in, a, in a, a way that was equal to God. Okay. 
We're to give her honor. We're to speak kindly of her. She was a, a faithful person. But we were never meant to venerate her. We were never meant to bow down to her or pray to her or paint her or put her in statues. That was never God's intention. We need to understand that. We don't see that at all in the scriptures. Her veneration and her worship were much later developments. Verse 28, and the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. So the angel came to her, and the rest has been heavily abused for years, hasn't it? What did he say? He said, Hail. Hail. Now, Rome says that indicates a prayer. They're lying. So they turn the angel's word into a prayer, and they say, well, we should all be saying, Hail Mary. No. The word actually means rejoice. He says to her, rejoice, you who are highly favored. The term signifies having received grace. She has received grace from the Lord. He goes on to give her a pretty standard greeting when he says, the Lord is with thee. Don't turn there, but Judges 6, 12, and the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, the Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. It's a very typical greeting in the Bible times. I point this out because I want to demonstrate that the greeting to Mary was nothing special, but common. I've heard Catholics say, well, it was unique to her. It puts her in a, a special place. No, it doesn't. It's a very common greeting you see throughout the Bible. It's like when he calls her woman, right? In the marriage of Cana of Galilee. Woman, what have I to do with thee? And they say, oh, woman. Well, see, he calls her woman because Adam called Eve woman. And he's signifying that she's the new Eve. Well, then what do you do with the woman at the well who he calls woman? Is she also another new Eve? No. It was, a, it was a common way of talking in Bible times. It's nothing special. It's nothing unique to the person. It's the way they talked in those times. The angel goes on to say, Blessed art thou among women. This is the same as saying, You're most happy among women. All women hope to bear the Messiah. And she would do that. Verse 29. When she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. If Zacharias, who dealt in spiritual matters, was afraid of the angel who appeared to him, can you imagine a young girl who's never dealt in spiritual matters before? An angel appears to her suddenly, says, you're highly favored of the Lord. She'd be terrified. Zacharias was terrified and he, he could have expected it. She cast in her mind what manner of citation this was. I think the best way to interpret this is to say that she thought it could be an evil spirit appearing to her. She didn't know. What's, what is this he's saying? What is he trying to tell me? Who, is this a trick of some kind? Verse 30, the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. Gabriel seems to understand her fear, and he assures her by calling her by name and telling her that she has found favor with God. He was not an evil spirit, but a messenger of the Most High God. Verse 31. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. Even though you're a virgin, you're going to conceive in your womb. What a, what a powerful thing for her to hear. What? We can see that this is not a, a future prophecy. Some might say, well, it's not really a virgin birth. He's just... He knows she's engaged, and so he comes to her and says, you guys are going to have a son. You're going to name him Jesus. That's what they're saying, right? No, that's not what the angel is saying here. It's very noteworthy for this, to mention this. That he says that you will conceive. Not you guys will conceive. But you will conceive. 
What, what do you say when you, you come to a couple getting married? You know, um, let's, say, let's say it's just the woman, right? Young couple getting married. What are you going to tell the young woman? May you guys be blessed with many children. Right? You guys, right? That's how it happens. You guys. Angel comes to Mary and says, who's about to be married, and says, you're going to conceive in the womb. You. Not you guys. You will conceive in the womb. I think that startled her just a little bit. You'll bring forth a son, he says. It was a proud thing in those cultures to have sons. It meant the carrying on of the family line and more workers to provide for the family. But this would be no ordinary son. You'll call his name Jesus. This is the name of the Old Testament Joshua, and it means something like the salvation of Jehovah. There's a connection in Acts 7.45. We don't have time, but you can read that later. Acts 7.45, where it calls Joshua Jesus. We can see the interchanging of the names there. It's kind of a fitting connection because Jesus is bringing his people through their final exodus from sin, whereas Joshua led them into the promised land of the first exodus. Matthew recorded the importance of the name Jesus in Matthew one twenty one. Go ahead and turn there, Matthew one twenty one. The name is very important. Matthew one twenty one, she shall bring forth the son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. This was no ordinary son being announced. This was no ordinary son being born. He was truly the salvation of Jehovah for his people. He was coming to save his people from their sins. Don't you love that? They're looking for this political Messiah. You know what the angel didn't say? He's coming to save his people from Rome. No. No. He's coming to save his people from their political enemies. No. <laughs> there is something greater, church, than political problems. That's our sin. Our sin is a problem. Problem today, I keep hearing that. Let's bring it down a little bit. Problem today is we want a political fix, don't we? This world will not be fixed by politics ever. Our problem is not political. We have sin. We have sinned against the Most High God, and that sin runs throughout all of humanity. What people need is to be saved from their sins. When people are saved from their sins, crime will go down. Homelessness will go down. Drug abuse will go down. Abortion will come to an end. The answer to all of our problems has always been Jesus. It's not political. It's our sins that have separated us from God. And church, our job is to preach this same message. A Savior has come to save his people from their sins. Go back to our text in Luke chapter 1. What a wonderful announcement. You know, the Jews at this time didn't believe they needed saving. Well, they still don't. 
They believed they were automatically in the kingdom because they were God's chosen people. They were God's nation. That's why John so offended them when he came baptizing. You know what John was doing, right, when he was baptizing? He was doing Jewish proselyte baptism. So when a Gentile came to convert to Judaism, they had to be baptized as a symbol of cleansing because they were unclean. Jews weren't baptized that way. Only Gentiles. Then here comes John in the baptismal going, by the way, Israel, you need it too. You are unclean. Boy, that offended people. This angel announces to Mary and the angel in Matthew 1 announces to Joseph. He's coming to save his people from their sins. Yes, they have sins too that must be repented of. Verse 32. He should be great. That's the biggest understatement I've ever read in my life. He should be great. He should be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. This is no doubt a reference to Isaiah 9, 6. He will be great as the God-man, the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, the perfect king, the perfect Adam. A whole new race of humanity was coming through Jesus Christ. You understand that? A whole new race was coming. I don't mean black or brown or... I mean a race of... What's what I'm looking for? An internal race. You understand, when you're born again, you're no longer a child of Adam. Right? So, well, yes, I am. No, you're not. That guy died... The guy who's born is made after the image of the new Adam. So yes, fleshly, physically, we bear the image of Adam. But that new man is after the new, he's a new person. Should be a new person. A whole new race of people. He'll be called the son of the highest. That is the son of the most high. Even the demons recognize that. Remember, the, he, Jesus comes to them. What are we to do with you, Jesus, thou son of the most high God? Gabriel goes on to say that he will give to him the throne of his father David. This was a fulfillment of the promise to David. Solomon was a type of that fulfillment, but he wasn't the ultimate fulfillment. You know why? Because God said that David would never want a man to sit upon his throne, and Solomon died. Solomon died. And the kingdom was split when his son took power. He rented away from them. Why? So he could give it to the perfect king come the appropriate time. Today, Jesus Christ sits upon the throne of David and he rules over God's household. In the Middle East, they're looking for a Messiah. No, they're not. The last thing the Jews want today is a Messiah. <laughs> the last thing they wanted 2,000 years ago was a Messiah. I don't mean to burst your bubble. I say this with all love. If you have a Star of David tattoo, I apologize. The Jews in Jerusalem today are not God's chosen people. They're not. And they're not looking for him. They're not. I was so heartbroken when our former vice president, Mike Pence, who claims to be a Christian, went and prayed at the Wailing Wall. What an act of idolatry. There's no God there to hear their prayer. 
That's a wall. And they're not looking for him today. But he has come. The throne is established. He will never be dethroned. He'll never be voted out of office. He'll never lose an election. He rules and reigns today and will for all time. Our job is to submit to him and to go out there and to announce to the world that he is risen and reigning today. Submit to King Jesus. What does the Psalm 2 says? Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little bit. In other words, come to Christ. Lay down your weapons. Come to Christ and surrender and submit to him. Verse 33, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. It's a direct connection to Isaiah 9, 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. See, so how do you know he's reigning today? Because the Bible tells us that. Jesus said, all power is given to me in heaven and in earth. Let me ask you this. If Jesus is not reigning now, he's just reigning at some time in the future, but not right now, how much more power does he get then? How much more power do you get than all? All power everywhere, heaven and earth, is given to me. What makes him less of a king today? What is he lacking? In the Minor Prophets, we covered this in one of the Minor Prophets before, it was prophesied that the tabernacle of David would be set back up in fulfillment of the Messiah coming and ruling from the throne of David. If you read Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council, I think it's James who quotes that verse in relation to the Gentiles being saved. In other words, Christ is reigning now and the Gentiles are coming to him. The kingdom of Israel would be restored under King Jesus. It would spread to include the whole world. This new kingdom is not a physical country, but a spiritual kingdom complete with a temple and priests who serve him. We are the temple of God, and we are priests serving in the temple of God. We're offering spiritual sacrifices to God this morning. Not sin offerings. Jesus offered the last one. But we offer the sacrifice of praise, don't we? Verse 34. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Her question in verse 34 is not like the one of Zacharias. I want to kind of lay that out there. You say, why did Zacharias get punished and Mary got praised? And the answer is her question didn't come from the same place his did. When Zacharias asked, how is this going to happen? He's obviously asking with sin in his heart, right? So you can't tell inflections in the Bible, but I, it's probably something like this. Yeah, right. How's that going to happen? As opposed to Mary, who goes, oh, God's going to do it. Well, how's that going to happen? See the difference there? 
His question was unbelief. <laughs> yeah, right. Hers was belief but puzzlement. <laughs> How's he going to do that? That's the difference between the two. Her question is not seeking a sign, but simply asking how God's going to accomplish it. In verse 35, he explains, Gabriel tells her the power of the Spirit would create the body of Jesus. The Spirit moved upon the waters in the creation and brought order from chaos. He brings the dead back to life again. The work of the Spirit is unique and powerful. He would form the body of Jesus. Verse 36, And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For with God nothing shall be impossible. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the possibility? Sarah was 90 years old when she conceived. Elizabeth, we don't know how old she was, but she was past the age of conceiving when she bore John. And then Mary, a virgin, never with a man, bearing a baby. When she asks, how's it going to happen? I love the answer of Gabriel. It can be summed up as, with God, nothing's impossible. Can you imagine what we could accomplish, church, in this world, if we lived like we follow a God to whom nothing is impossible? I mean, nothing. No man? Fine. Maybe anyways. Too old? Parts are shut down? I'll restart them. I'll restart them. The promised child? Go sacrifice him. I guess he'll just raise him from the dead again. Nothing is impossible. Can you imagine what the church could do in the world if we truly believe that? I mean, I know we say we believe it, right? Amen. We say the words. We, we sing the songs. Nothing is impossible when you put your trust in. We don't live our lives like nothing is impossible from God. We should pray differently. We should preach differently. We should obey differently. Can you imagine if your prayer life actually was backed up by the belief that God can do anything he wants? What would you ask for? What would you say in prayer? There, should, there could be no end to that request. He can do anything? Then why is everyone moving out of California? You know why? Because they don't believe he can do anything. That's why. Sorry, I don't mean to be rude if you're planning on going, but... It's just so bad here. And he can change that. Oh, you're praying for the president to get saved. <laughs> He'll never get saved. I bet they said the same thing about Paul. Didn't they? Don't bring him over here. He's a killer. He's been saved. Yeah, right. Do we really believe that God can save anybody? Do we? Can you imagine if we went out and preached the gospel in the streets like we believed that God could just save people right then and there by who were hearing the gospel? He can. Nothing is impossible. Nothing is impossible. I mean, I think I've told the story before. It's a good story, so I like to tell it. Street preaching, 
I wasn't in the group, but she preaching friends in New Orleans for the Super Bowl. Preaching the gospel. A man stops and listens to the gospel being preached. They don't know him. They've never seen him. He's a local man carrying a big stack of papers in his hand. He listens for two hours to several different preachers. Finally, one of the men walk up to him and says, do you have any thoughts about what you've been hearing? And he begins to weep and to cry. He said, I was on my way. I was going to kill myself today. These are letters to my family. I was going to mail off that mailbox right over there and then go home and kill myself. God saved him that day. God can do anything, anytime. It doesn't matter who they are or what they've done or where they're at. Think about our prayer list. Think about those who are on there for salvation. God can save anybody, anytime he wants to. Say, Pastor, we can't afford to even survive as a church. You know, one time, Elijah was in the desert, and God just sent food in the mouth of a bird and dropped it off for him. said, so here, here you go. If he could feed a prophet by a raven, couldn't he take care of us? Honestly, I mean, if he saved eight people by a flood, couldn't he, couldn't he help our problems? If we lived our life like we really believe this verse, man, we could do some things in this world. We could see revival. We could see people saved. We could see miracles happen. Do you know why miracles happen to people in the Bible? Because they believe that with God, nothing was impossible. That's why. They just went out and did it. They just served the Lord. Elijah, or was Elisha, one of those two, they're, they're very similar guys. The widow's dead son, he just goes there and lays on him and prays over him. You know, he had never laid on top of anybody and prayed over them before. But he believed that God could raise the dead. So he did it. Why don't we do these things? You know, in James, it says to, uh, when you're sick, to call for the elders of the church, to lay hands. You know, we've turned that into some weird ceremony these days. Like, we're very Catholic. I don't know what's up with them. We're very formal. That's not some formal ceremony where you're like, you tried all the doctors, you tried all the stuff. And so our last resort is to go to God. And so then we come up in front of the church and we have this special oil. It's really just oil from the store. You know, it's got no real power to it. I've been in churches that did that. It's like, what are we doing? You know what that means? When you're sick, call for the elders of the church to lay hands on you to pray for your healing. Does that mean cancer, Pastor? That means the flu. Do we really believe that we can lay on hands and pray over someone and they can be healed? If we did, wouldn't we call more? Wouldn't we ask more? Corey Tindall, when she fell and hurt her hip, uh, I, was in, I think she was in Germany at the time, and she's rushed to the hospital. She had to be somewhere to speak, and they said, oh, you can't leave. Your hip is in bad shape. Well, the first thing she said was, get me some medicine, let's get some x-rays, let's check it. No, she didn't. She said, is there nobody in this town who can come and lay hands and pray for me? That was her first thought. Why has nobody prayed for me yet? Call a Christian. Yeah. 
Do we really live like we believe what the Bible says? And listen, sometimes God heals through doctors and through medicine. I understand all of that. But I'm saying is, is our first thought God can do this? Or is that our last resort? I lost where I was at. Verse 38, Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. In other words, she said, I don't know how God's going to do it, but whatever he says. Man, this verse could change our lives, couldn't it? You don't have to understand what God is doing or why God is doing what God is doing. Our job is simply to say, huh, well, whatever he wants. If we lived our lives by whatever he wants, <laughs> that would change our lives, wouldn't it? Not what do I want. What does he want me to do? How should I handle this situation? What does he want me to do? She believed the word of the Lord. And we have here a beautiful picture of acceptance. Our job is not to understand. Our job is to accept. I love so much when Elizabeth Elliot would talk about her husband's death in the jungles there in Ecuador. And she has this thing, she'd say, people ask me, Elizabeth, why did God do that? She said, I just tell them very frankly, it's not my responsibility to know why. It's my responsibility to accept and to obey. That's it. If you and I would accept what God says and obey what God has said, our lives would be a thousand times better than they are right now. We would see more miracles. We would feel the hand of God. We would see the power of God in our lives. We might just see revival if we just take the Bible and believe it and say, whatever you have said, Lord, that's what we're going to do. Because nothing's impossible with you. She didn't fully understand, but she submitted herself to the will of God. Let me challenge you this morning, church. Trust and obey. Trust and obey. We don't need all the answers. We don't need to understand. We just need to trust and to accept. Believe and to trust. We need to believe that God can do anything. We need to learn the great principle of acceptance. Is this the will of God for me? Then I accept it and I obey. I don't understand why I'm so sick when I should be putting a lot more time into prayer and fasting and stuff. God, why am I sick right now? I don't know. But I am. And people have laid hands and they pray and I, I'm not healed yet. So my, I don't know. I can either complain about it or just trust that God knows what he's doing. Why is Earl going through this right now? I don't know. I don't know, but his job is to accept it and to trust. Why is my baby back in the hospital? I don't know. My job is to accept it and to trust that God knows what he's doing. Why, why are you having the struggle you're having? Why are you going through what you're going through health-wise or family-wise or job-wise? I don't know. But I know that God does. And our job is just to accept it and to obey. Amen. And say, well, be a Lord according to your word. Hallelujah.
be a Lord according to your word. Because you can do anything. Anything is possible with God. Let me challenge you, church, this morning. Believe. If you believe nothing else I've said, believe that verse. Nothing. Nothing will be impossible with God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this time in the word, for the example of obedience that Mary gave to us, Lord. We do call her blessed, as you said, all generations would call her blessed. We don't venerate her. We don't pray to her. We don't bow to her. But we give thanks for her, for her obedience, for her faith, for her willingness to accept that which she did not understand. May we, in those times of darkness, accept that for which we don't understand. And may we just say, well, be it, Lord, according to your word. We are simply unworthy servants. We have no right to dictate to you terms of anything. You've given us our lives back. Our lives belong to you. Help us to believe that with you nothing shall be impossible and to simply trust and obey. As the song says, there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. We love you, Lord. We love you. We seek your face this morning. Oh, turn not away from us, Lord. Turn us and we shall live. Revive us, Lord. Bless the offering that's to come. In Jesus' name, amen.